It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 22nd of November, with uh, much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Leaders' questions in the Dáil is normally an opportunity for the leaders of uh, the political parties to ask questions of uh, the Taoiseach and of the government. Yesterday in the Dáil, the leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan, broke with this tradition. Can Corla- my leader's question is to Mial Martin. <laughs> and to Mary Lou. And to Brendan Howland. And any other leader here, Dáil Deputy. As well as to you, Taoiseach. And to myself. Taoiseach, you just said... Well, I know what... Taoiseach, you just said... Myself, in the sense we all have responsibility. Taoiseach, you said the time will come someday when you are willing to say what you want to do on climate. I'm telling you, I believe that day is today. I was a bit bold, I suppose, but to make a good point, um, because we have this whole issue about how we tackle climate change, and one of the elements of it, it's not the main one, but it's one we have to get right, is putting a price on carbon, uh, carbon tax, and there's all sorts of different views on that. Uh, indeed, Mial Martin had just asked the Taoiseach earlier on in the same session, you know, what, and didn't really get anywhere. So I thought, OK, let's turn it. So I asked Mial Martin and I asked Mary Lou and I asked Brendan Howland and every deputy effectively, would they agree to the following proposition? That, and I asked the Taoiseach too, but I, I, he had kind of evaded the question. So I said, OK, put, put, put the Taoiseach aside. Um, would we agree if there was any increase in carbon tax, what we would do is that the revenue we would get we would hand back directly to the citizens. It's called a tax and dividend. So you're, right. you're doing it not to raise money and you guarantee that every single penny goes back in, in, in equally divided across every citizen in the country and that we would increase the tax by 20 euros a tonne next year and then each year up to 2030 there'd be a five euro, five euro increase. And that gets you to what all the scientists and the policy experts are saying. 
but it allows you to do it politically in a way that's agreed. That it's because if you're going to do it over nine years, you know, Neil Martin or, or Mary Lou or Brendan Howland, as well as the Taoiseach or whoever the future Taoiseach is, is going to have to buy into that. So um, now I think they were a bit surprised. Mm. Kind of caught them on the hop a wee yeah. bit. Well, there was a bit of laughing and sniggering, uh, but uh, people yeah. were undoubtedly caught on the hop. Uh, you yeah. said to the Taoiseach uh, that you didn't mind if Finnegal abstained for the reasons you've just outlined to us, uh, but the Taoiseach came back to you and said, well, they do this in Canada and we could do the same here. Well, no, that's how it worked in a sense. I was lucky, I suppose. But I was annoyed because he had said earlier when he was asked by Michael Martin, when would they address the issue? And he said something like, oh, the time for us to that will be in the future or, you know, we'll come back to it some other time. And I said to him, no, the time is now, which I think it is, because mm. we have a new uh, energy plan that we have to write by Christmas. It's part of new EU governance laws. And if you don't know what you're going to do in the price of carbon and you're not doing anything else, which the government isn't, you're not getting off even to first base. And we have to start acting in this area. We have to start mm. leading and, and not just uh, trying to evade responsibilities. So, so it, it, your, it, it, your, your idea, though, is uh, do your bit for the environment uh, or be taxed. Uh, and uh, that tax will go back to the people who do something for the environment. No, I think, to be honest, we need to move on from just the blaming individuals and pointing the finger at them and making them feel guilty and making them feel, feel shamed. The way this is designed is it gives a signal in every day, in every market, uh, that you know car- carbon does count and, and you put a price on it. But you don't see that, or, or you're not making a moral choice every morning, or we're not shaming people who don't. But that the revenue we raise from that, mm. we no matter what you do, like if you're an angel or a devil, it doesn't matter. Mm. The money will go back to the citizens. And in that way, you get over what's been kind of um, uh, people are nervous about is public reaction against this. Well, this is a way that you give the signal for us to start cutting away from the use of carbon. But you don't have people with the sense, God, they're taking every penny out of my out of my pocket. In fact, you're getting a check back. Now, right. what that will tend to do is it'll go to those maybe on lower incomes mm. more than higher because well, they this can... is the detail and perhaps the mm. devil is in the detail because the Taoiseach said yes we're willing to raise carbon taxes and give it back to the people uh, you had suggested that that would be done by way of giving money back in social welfare or in taxes or mm. perhaps a check in the post uh, for people uh, who aren't uh, in uh, that sort of a relationship with uh, the state but I'm not sure that's what the Taoiseach meant was it? No, I think it was in the end. What, was what, it? What, yeah, yeah the way, in the way it worked yesterday, mm. he came round and it was unusual, and I was glad he did. He said, OK, we'll agree to that, and effectively. So it does put the ball back in Fianna mm. Fáil, Sinn Féin, Labour's court. I think they will row in behind it. I think that's one element of what we need to do out of the way. It's only one element. We've got a massive change to make, and we need to make it easy for people to cut out the carbon. We need to make, have a whole mm. range of programmes about retrofitting buildings, promoting electric vehicles, getting people cycling, proper public transport and so on. But at least if we can get this bit sorted, it, you can put that out of the way for the next 10 years and you concentrate on the big things we need to do, which is making it easier, making investment decisions mm. that actually help people cut the carbon out. So um, it was interesting politically yesterday. It, it ain't a done deal mm. yet, mm. But it's it's a long way there, and and I was glad. Uh, sometimes in the doll it works. Sometimes the, the, you actually yeah. you actually get to make policy on in the chamber, and that, that's what I think in part what happened yesterday. There, there's no risk though that the Taoiseach meant that instead of giving it back to everybody, pensioners and people on social welfare, low-paid workers and so on, 
uh, that he wasn't saying to you uh, that what we'll do is uh, we'll increase uh, the threshold and you'll have to earn €50,000 as a single person no. before you start paying the higher rate of income tax. No, that would never work. And I, I, I wouldn't be right. The, I'm on a climate action committee which is looking at this mm. whole issue. Um, last week in the door, in, in, in that mm, committee rather, mm-hmm. we asked the Department of Finance to prepare a note for us, to prepare a research paper which was showing exactly how we would do it. Now, we're due to get that at the end of next week. So that'll give us a much more clear idea of the specifics. But no, this has to be fair. We need we need to just uh, transition to this low-carbon future. And if anything, we need to favour those who are in greatest fuel mm-hmm. poverty, who are on, uh, in most need, because they're the ones you really have to protect in any process. So it can't be that just for the well-to-do. It has to be particularly... I mean, the, Well, that's the, your view, and uh, yeah. perhaps it'll be uh, the advice that you'll get from uh, the Secretary-General, who you told uh, the doll will report back to you on the 30th of uh, this month, so that you can prepare a report on the steps forward in terms of tackling our carbon emissions in this country. But are you fearful that the Taoiseach's idea of giving it back to the people is by making the rich richer? No, well, that won't be agreed. That that won't happen, and and uh, he won't get consensus in that. So, uh, uh, and and it's just not going to work. So, so uh, that won't apply. Mm. I'm confident we will get it in, along the lines that I'm I'm uh, suggesting, and that by doing it that way. I think it is should be possible to get all party agreement. This doll is a strange doll. Like a lot mm. of people are kind of pulling their hair out, it's very weak in some ways. But in some things, actually, when you work collectively, when you work collaboratively, it can work. I think it's worked on Brexit. Like the fact that we've had a common position, you'd heard it last night in the debate about Brexit, pretty much everyone has agreed that has strengthened our hand in those whole, whole talks. It's been a whole of Irish politics agreement against the divided UK. That's one example. Mm. There are other examples. I think while maybe people are very different views on, on the repeal referendum the fact that it was it was done in a kind of proper way with the committee looking in real detail proper time given to it sometimes a, a, a doll like the one we have at the moment where there isn't a majority to one party where you do get forces people to kind of work collaboratively actually I think sometimes it works and that's what we want mm. to do in the climate agenda is kind of bring everyone together let's be good at this let's okay. make, make the leap we need to make So instead of giving it with one hand and taking it back with the other you're suggesting uh, that the government takes it with one hand and gives it back with the other. That's uh, increase carbon taxes but give it back to the people. Uh, does that mean uh, that people will get back it as much as has been suggested? People would have seen the headlines yesterday based on the ESRI research that this could be €1,500 per person, 3000 per family. I, I think that ESRI re- research was a bit mad. What it was, well, it was saying that if we keep going where we're going, in other words, if we're not making the investment decisions in favour of public transport, smarter farming, Mm. forestry, renewable energy, if we do nothing, and if we wanted to meet our targets, that's what we'd have to do. But but that's not uh, going to happen. So I don't think those sort of levels of tax should ever or would ever be introduced. Uh, But I think it does point the finger at the government in this, Mm. in that actually they're not doing the other things we need to do and that's what we need to start focusing on now Uh, particularly in terms of how we retrofit our homes because Mm. that's the most efficient economic way and there are the most benefits in terms of having a really warm comfortable home health benefits and so on so uh, the ESRI research was based on okay we'll do nothing except a carbon tax how much would it cost Mm. and they came up with those huge figures Uh, I don't think it'll be that much I think it might be uh, initially uh, a couple of hundred euros a year. Okay. 
but you know that's still mm, better to get lot, in the yeah. post than uh, not getting. Uh, it. So. And you're talking about retrofitting homes, uh, putting in insulation, that sort of thing, so that people spend <coughs> less on heating, uh, but their heating may cost more. Probably uh, a fiver on a, a bag of coal, two or three cent on uh, a litre of petrol or diesel, as the case may be. And people will say, "Well, why is it that we have to pay for it?" Or farmers will say, "Look, we need to farm, uh, and we can't stop our cattle from belching or uh, the emissions that come from fertilizer or whatever the case may be." And why is it not the big players in this problem that have to pay the price? Industry, for example, and transport, the planes, the trains and uh, the automobiles. Well, they will too. One of the reasons why we do have to act, and, and there's a whole variety of reasons, one is the moral imperative, uh, and also that there's a better economy coming if you act. But the third and other, or one of the other reasons, um, we've entered, entered this agreement as part of the European Union, as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, that we will cut our emissions by 30% in the next 12 years. Now, if we don't do it, there's a way out we can kind of half use, which is pay other countries money, and they would invest in their public transport, they would invest in making their buildings more energy efficient, and they would make energy savings from that, and we would take the emissions reductions that they uh, uh, bring and put it onto our account. But the craziness of that is that they're actually improving their transport system, they're improving their homes. All we're getting is the, the accounting trick, as it were, to say that we're doing our bit, but, it, but that doesn't make sense. It makes far more sense for us to improve our housing stock, build public transport. And I think in farming, you mentioned farming, they're like, you know, it's not as if the current farming model is working for Irish farmers. Like, they're not getting paid well under the current system. They're, on, they're at the tail end of the whole market system, all the powers with the retailers and with the processors and the big PLCs, the big um, uh, companies. So I'm saying, and increasingly what I'm finding, Irish farmers are coming to us and saying, do you know what? You're right, actually. If going green in agriculture does make sense, because if if you can get a better price, and if we can design the the common agricultural policy system where you're paying farmers for storing carbon, you're paying farmers for looking after the water quality in our land, you're paying farmers for looking after nature, protecting biodiversity, which we also need to do, I think for them this is a better future. Now, it's not easy change. It's It's going to take a long time. But doing nothing and just sticking where we are, status quo, is not the clever way to go in my mind. Eamon Ryan is the leader of the Green Party. He was speaking to me before we came on air. Michael Reed on LMFM. An audit of uh, Scouting Ireland's historical records shows at least 108 cases of child abuse, 71 alleged abusers, 14 of those alleged abusers said to be multiple abusers. This information was passed on to the Children's Oireachtas Committee by the Minister for Children, Catherine Sabone, who described it as deeply distressing. The audit was carried out by the safeguarding expert Ian Elliott. The chair of the committee, Alan Farrell, described it as deeply disturbing and the one in four organisation says it's astonishing. Maeve Lewis is executive director with one in four and joins us now. Uh, It certainly is, uh, given that this audit is only half complete as such. Good morning, Michael. I mean, it is just incredible that there could be 71 sex offenders who managed to infiltrate such a trusted organisation as the Scouts during a 20-year period and uh, abused, we, as we know, oh, 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 as we know of, um, 108 uh, children. I mean, it, it, 
I suppose this highlights the tactics used by sex offenders in that um, they will often put themselves in positions where they do have access to children and use a position of trust, um, trusted by the families, uh, trusted by the child, to then move on and abuse them. But, I mean, this is so worrying because Ian Elliott, who is conducting the review, um, is only halfway through. He's continuing now to examine files relating to the 90s and the noughties right up to the present day. So, I mean, we still have no idea how many more um, people will be identified as having... So there's another three decades of records to go through uh, as such, and we know about these cases because somebody else knew about them because they were recorded in files that were kept in Scouting Ireland. I mean, that is what I say. Extraordinary detailed files were kept. They were locked in a fireproof cupboard, I understand, but no action was taken to alert uh, the Gordy or the, the then HSE Child Protection Services um, in relation to what was going on. Hmm. Um, and I mean, 14 of those offenders had abused multiple children. So, um, you know, who knows how many children might have been saved from harm if somebody had acted at the time. Right. Uh, so when Ian Elliott says that these numbers are going to increase, uh, it's... Uh, an understatement of anything because, I mean, what we're talking about here are children who were abused and the people who abused them that Scouting Ireland was aware of. I, I gather if there were so many cases of abuse that were recorded like that, there were probably scores more. There probably were. And I mean, it is heartbreaking to think that um, an organisation that does some fantastic work in Scouting Ireland um, an organisation that parents absolutely trust and encourage their children to join um, should have been so negligent um, in relation to safeguarding the children uh, who are members in, from harm. And um, while Ian Elliott has said that some of the alleged offenders are dead um, and they all have left Scouting Ireland, mm. we have no idea where the others are and if they still have access to children and perhaps are continuing to abuse. Yeah, and some are said by Scouting Ireland to be in prison. That's possible. I mean, we we just don't know. Mm. Uh, and uh, I presume it's known to the authorities, though, or at least that's uh, what we're being led to believe. Scouting Ireland has said that all of this information has been passed on to Angarda Connan now and uh, to Tusla, the Child and Family Agency. Yeah, I understand that has happened and um, that's absolutely the correct um, line of action to take. In, in um, terms of child protection, though, are you satisfied? Well, I mean, Scouting Ireland, there have been a number of very recent scandals and... Um, the Minister for Children, Catherine Dupone, actually withdrew funding earlier on this year from from the Scouts. Um, but now there is a completely new board, new governance in place, um, new child protection measures put in place. I would have the height of um, respect for Ian Elliott, who, um, in fact, was the person who set up the Catholic Church's National Board for Safeguarding Children and did a fantastic job. Mm. I mean, he is a man of great expertise and great integrity. So if he is their acting child safeguarding officer, I think we need to have no fear but that very vigorous um, procedures and policies will be put in place. But it must be very worrying for the thousands of parents out there who have children who will be attending scouting events this weekend. Um, and they really need to be reassured that every action is being put in place to ensure that children are safe when yeah. they're is it possible to do that before this audit is complete, do you think, Maeve? Uh, because I wonder when we're told uh, about uh, the 71 uh, abusers uh, that 
uh, are alleged of acting in that way up to the 1980s, uh, does it mean that anybody who uh, Scouting Ireland recorded as having abused is no longer in Scouting Ireland, in other words, from the 90s onwards, or are dead or in prison or not working with children? I mean, that we don't know. Mm. That, that is very worrying. And we won't know that for some period of time, I take it. No, it will take some time, I gather. Um, now, I heard Ian Elliott yesterday and Scouting Ireland calling for extra resources to be made available to his team so that this review can be expedited. And, I mean, I, I would certainly support a call for resources to be put in place to do that. Otherwise, we're talking a uh, matter of months, is it? Possibly. I, do, I really mm. I don't have that information, Michael. OK, but he, he's been uh, working on these files since June, I think. Yes, he has, yep. So relatively quickly, uh, but I guess it, it depends on uh, what's in the files or how many files there are from this point onwards, from the 80s onwards, from the 90s onwards as such. Exactly, and we don't actually know um, how many files there would be. I mean, we have to remember mandatory reporting was only introduced into this country under the um, Children's Act of 2015 and was only commenced last year. Uh, so nowadays, um, anybody acting in, in a role as a scout leader or something like that would absolutely uh, be, by law, required to pass any uh, concerns over to Tusla. Um, but up until then, um, while there were guidelines in place, they were not legally enforceable. So for the people who knew about this abuse, who may have taken complaints or recorded the allegations in these files, there's probably uh, no sanction for them. No, and I mean, we've already been through this in terms of the scandals in the Catholic Church mm. and all the various reports and no action, legal action, was able to be taken against uh, the church authorities who covered up um, abuse because th- it, there was no law in place. There is now, um, but that means that there you know, cannot be any um, sanctions placed on people who covered up abuse within the Scouts. We have some understanding as under uh, as difficult it is as it is to understand as to what the thinking was in the catholic church and uh, by all accounts uh, it was to protect the church as the number one priority and if that meant that uh, children suffered as a result or other children were left in a situation where they were at risk, risk so be it. Uh, we heard of things like mental reservation uh, where uh, priests were allowed not to tell the truth by forgetting to finish off sentences uh, as such. We heard of bishops moving bishops and sending priests for treatment and that sort of thing and that it was a different time and so on and they were the type of arguments uh, that were put forward to a large degree that it was a different time people didn't understand uh, do we know anything about the thinking in Scouting Ireland as to why they would have uh, taken these allegations heard the complaints as human beings would have understood as well as any other human beings how serious these allegations were uh, and decided to write them down in files and lock those files away Look I really have, have no idea what people must have been thinking I mean it was a different time There wasn't the awareness of the extent of child sexual abuse. But nonetheless, I mean, mean, people would be drawn to volunteering the Scouts because they were interested in children in a a positive way. And um, they probably were parents themselves. I mean, they must have known the devastation that would be caused by the sexual abuse of children. So why or who knew about this cover-up? I mean, that remains to be seen and hopefully 
Ian Elliott will have something to tell us about that in, in the coming months. We have a, a d- very dark past in this country, doesn't it? Don't we? I mean, it's incredible to think that there have been so many uh, paedophiles in this country and that they were able to permeate, it would seem, e- every institution and aspect of the world that we lived in. Well, listen, you know, the research, the savvy research, which is now nearly 20 years old, um, said that one in four Irish children experienced sexual harm. That's We take our name from that statistic. And just on Wednesday, um, uh, Charlie Flanagan, the mm. Minister for Justice, has announced that uh, the savvy research is going to be replicated um, by the Central Statistic Office and will be replicated every 10 years after that. And that is enormously... Uh, welcome news because it will give us the data to know if all the changes in legislation and attitudes and so on in the past decade have helped to reduce the incidence of child sexual abuse in this country. Um, Until we have that data, we don't know if what we've been doing has been effective. But, I mean, my sense is that the people, parents, family members are much more aware now of the dangers of sexual abuse. The problem is that paedophiles are people who... Um, are often very charming, very trusted, um, and know how to get access to children. By There are many children who are abused in their own families, but then who are abused by trusted friends of families, neighbours and so on, um, where parents have no idea that they're placing their children in harm's way. And it is often very hard for members of the public um, to believe or to accept that the person who abused their children, who, you know, maybe a long-time friend or somebody, is actually um, a child of sexual offender. It's, mm. People find it very hard to get their heads around that. Mm. And uh, they've been quite uh, good at taking up positions of trust, whether that's been in the priesthood, the clergy, or as a scout leader with uh, sometimes unrestricted access uh, to children, as uh, the case may be. A lot of, of the abuse that happened in Scouting Ireland, it would appear, happened on camping trips. Uh, we're hearing about some of the children abused and some of the abusers. Uh, it's generally expected that those numbers will increase and that a, a lot of the children who were abused, if this is the scale of the amount of children that were recorded to have alleged abuse, that that number will increase dramatically. And there's probably people listening to us today, given uh, how big an organisation Scouting Ireland is, that were abused at some stage. Uh, It's a a most difficult situation for them if they've been carrying this around for a very long time. It is. And I was very glad to hear Ian Elliott uh, in front of the Oireachtas Committee yesterday making the point that we can focus on the numbers if we like, but this is about actual human beings who have carried the pain and the distress of what happened to them as children right through their adult lives. Um, I I do commend Scouting Ireland because I understand they have made provision that um, anybody who comes forward will be offered support and counselling, and and that's important. Um, I think we also have to remember that this is going to trigger memories for people who were abused in other contexts, uh, for example, when the Pope was here and there was huge media coverage of abuse in the church, we had 147 new contacts that week, and many of whom had been abused in their own families or communities, not in the church. And the problem is that organisations like One in Four, the Rape Crisis Centres, the National Counselling Service, are all working under tremendously long waiting lists because we're all under-resourced. So that when somebody does take the big step of reaching out and asking for help, very often they have to wait for a long period of time Mm. before that help can be offered and that is a national disgrace. And you've closed your waiting list, haven't you? Our waiting list is closed at the moment and we Mm. hope to open it before Christmas, Um, but it has got to a point where people were waiting for nearly a year for an appointment and we decided we we just would have to take 
that step. Uh, but the problem is we don't even have places to refer people to because everywhere, every all the other organisations have also long waiting lists too. Mm. And we know from the experience, let's say, of uh, child sexual abuse in uh, the Catholic Church that people carry that around for a very long period of time and then when the stories broke they decided, look, I need to do something about this myself and to get help. Uh, given the crisis that there is and providing that support to people, what do you suggest if somebody uh, is reaching out today? Well, I would I would urge them to to make contact um, with any of the organisations, including one in four, at least they'll be able to speak to somebody on the phone. Um, and I suppose one of the things that happens in situations like this, I would suspect that there are probably people listening to you this morning, Michael, mm. who were abused in the Scouts, but who thought they were the only one yeah. and who now realise that they're not. That in itself helps to remove some of the shame that many people carry about the, the sexual abuse experience. Um, and that can be very helpful. Uh, so I mean, it is really positive that the story is broken and that it will give people the opportunity to reach out for help. But for anybody abused um, within the Scouts, I would suggest they contact Scouting Ireland, who have promised to provide uh, resources for um, counselling uh, for anybody who is affected. All right. Okay. And we'll just uh, mention to people that your number is uh, a Dublin number 0166240070. And thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Maeve Lewis is Executive executive Director with 1 and 4. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the clock is ticking down uh, to the Christmas recess and uh, there's pressure on politicians uh, to get the legislation necessary passed before then in order for abortion to be available by January. Let's talk about this with Independent TD for Meath West, Padder Tobin. Uh, obviously this is an issue of great importance to you but it looks as though uh, this uh, may run over. Yeah, first of all, uh, Kate O'Connell, who would be, I suppose, a pro-choice TD, stated uh, when she discussed this legislation that she felt it was important to to develop it correctly and to make sure that it didn't have a situation where tragedies were created in in the future. And she said, listen, if it takes a month or two to get the legislation right uh, and make sure it's done properly, well, then that's what should happen. Mm -hmm. And typically a piece of legislation like this, like... If I was to legalise, for example, or make a change in the legislation on hedge cutting, you would have about two years consultation with the people who are involved in Mm, mm. uh, those particular areas. And yet the government's carried out no consultation whatsoever with doctors, uh, nurses, midwives, uh, pharmacists and other healthcare Mm, workers. And that's actually, it's, it's, it's that kind of mismanagement that Simon Harris is used to with regards to health service that's actually leading to all of these questions and difficulties arising in this piece of legislation. And it's it's interesting that the chaos we see in the health service is now starting to become visible with Simon Harris's uh, abortion law as well. The majority of doctors, two-thirds of doctors, said they're not going to actually provide the service. And about a quarter of doctors say that they don't want to be forced to arrange the service because under the legislation as it stands, a doctor must either provide the service or arrange for the service to be carried out. Now, the the legislation states quite clearly that this is a law that seeks to end the life of the unborn child. So if I arrange... Okay, but that's that's implementing the law if it's passed, and we can come back to that in a moment. Uh, Let's pretend we're talking about hedge-cutting rather than abortion, just to take uh, the emotion or your personal views out of the conversation. Do you believe uh, that this can be passed before Christmas? Well, 
there's nothing stopping it from being passed before Christmas if the government obviously allots the necessary time for it to be discussed. There's only really two more stages for the legislation mm. to be carried out. And one of those stages actually happens <clears throat> in the space of a couple of hours. Uh, there's one final uh, large stage, and that large stage is called report stage. And it's where TDs uh, are asked to bring amendments to the legislation mm. to prove to improve the legislation. And there's uh, so uh, many amendments that they're trying to streamline them so that the, I- instead of three TDs proposing the same thing in a different way, there'll be one proposed amendment. Yeah, so most of the amendments are actually pro-choice amendments mm. or pro-abortion mm. amendments. They're not actually from... The, so there'll only be about 10% of the amendments which will actually come from uh, pro-life amendments. And most of those pro-life amendments won't seek to really change the law with regards to access, but just to, let's say, provide pain relief for the unborn child in, in, the, in the case of a late-term abortion mm. or medical care for a baby who has survived an abortion but is seriously injured uh, or to ban abortion in the case of disability uh, or gender. You know, in Britain, for example, the Labour Party is looking to ban gender selection abortion. But in this country, under the current legislation being supported by Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin and Labour, mm. you know, both disability and gender selection abortion will be available. Um, and also, you know, freedom of conscience. And freedom of conscience is the big sticking point in this. I've spoken to obstetricians and they have told me that hospitals, uh, uh, three separate hospitals around the country, that the staff have said they're refusing to get involved in surgical abortions mm. in the future. Uh, and the government is, is going around talking to these people for the first time about uh, surgical abortions in their hospitals and still hoping to get the service up and running uh, in a month's time. But the problem um, is the amount of amendments, isn't it, rather than the context of what's being proposed because uh, you can kind of guess the way the majority of TDs will vote, uh, uh, but it's getting through them and if there's the time to get through them before Christmas and it's been suggested that even if there's late night sittings, there may not be enough time. The problem is, Michael, if you want to get this legislation passed fast, the problem is you have a lot of TDs who can't help themselves but talk forever. And I know that's that's mm. the curse of a politician, but on the committee stage of this bill, the <clears throat> pro-choice or pro-abortion TDs, they, they spoke forever about their amendments, and then they withdrew their amendments in the end. And I've never actually attended a piece of legislation being gone through the doll where people from the hard left, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, mm. all withdrew their amendments when asked to by the government. It was startling. Usually, mm. at some stage, the opposition would oppose the government and actually push their amendments through to a vote. But they were happy to speak about them for 30 hours, but all of those amendments were withdrawn. And that's startling. An actual fact... If the pro-choice and uh, TDs really wanted to get through this uh, before Christmas, they would just actually put the brakes in the amount of words they use. Well, let's say they didn't, and let's say they don't get through it before Christmas, and then it's the middle of January before the doll resumes and uh, the debate continues, uh, but not at a pace quick enough that it's passed before the time of a general election. Is that a possibility? Um, I doubt that's a possibility, to be honest. I, I, w- I would say that um, given the, um, the, the fact that the government feels that this is the most important piece of legislation that it has, given that they've given a priority over you know, all the health service uh, legislation that needs to happen and all the health service reforms, given the fact that they're now going to, let's say, pay for, I think each abortion is going to cost uh, about €460 Euros, uh, for two or three uh, meetings with a doctor, 
that's what the doctor will receive. Mm. Yet the doctor will receive less than that, about 100 euros less than that, for a maternity service. Given the fact that the government is prioritising this so much, I can't see a situation where this isn't passed uh, by mid-January, or to be honest, it isn't passed before Christmas. Um, and I can't see an election happening this side of March, so it would be really unlikely that the government will fall uh, while this legislation is still hanging over. And given the fact that Micheál Martin simply wants to get this behind him, um, I can't see him forcing an, an election while this legislation is still hanging. Uh, the key issue here, though, is, and this is where the government have made a, a dog's dinner of it, is that right across the country, the people that are asking to carry out the abortions don't want to carry out the abortion. That the government have introduced a system that exists nowhere else in the world and have, have introduced it without even talking to the people they want to introduce it. Uh, and that's the major difficulty. That hospitals in Cavan, Letterkenny, Kilkenny, have, have, have the doctors, and the obstetricians and the medical staff have come together and said that we want to be able to provide health services that help the people, that save people's lives. We don't want to be involved in deaths that are actually preventable. And we don't want to be involved in causing those particular deaths. Okay, well, and, we'll and that's back. the difficulty that Simon we'll, Harris has. We'll come back to, to those issues, I imagine, in uh, the early part of 2019, if, as you say, the legislation is passed before that. But we leave that for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Independent TD for Mead West, Peter Tobin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning to you, Michael, and to all our listeners. Anne from Drogheda was in touch and wanted to say that uh, we're paying enough taxes as it is. I think if the poor people that cannot afford to heat their homes because of these charges, that we should think of them that it's not just straightforward and feels. All right. Well, I suppose uh, the idea is somewhat different in that uh, they're saying you'd be charged, but you'd be given the money back. Geraldine from Malbriggan says, listening to your interview, Michael, and you raise a good point. Why shouldn't the big companies be paying? Many people just cannot afford extra tax. Mm. Uh, Margaret also contacted us and she says that everyone was expecting the carbon tax increase in the budget, but that didn't materialise. And despite, despite people mm. expecting it and she says does that not show you where the government stands in relation to climate change it's clearly not a priority well yeah they have uh, the uh, farming lobby to contend with uh, apart from anybody else Tommy was listening to the interview with um, Eamon Ryan and mm. he was disgusted to hear the level of jeering and sneering that was aimed at Deputy Ryan by the Taoiseach and other TDs in the doll in the snippet that you played. Mm. He feels that the rudeness and disrespect was astonishing and they sounded like, quote, <laughs> bratty children. Yeah, I don't know. I think they were amused and I think uh, Eamon Ryan probably revelled in it to be honest because it was an unusual thing as I was saying at the outset usually what happens at leaders questions is the leaders of the opposition parties ask the leader of the main government party Fine Gael, the Taoiseach uh, questions or his representative uh, usually another minister so it's leaders asking the government questions when Eamon Ryan came out and said he wanted to ask questions of the opposition okay. uh, so they were 
were somewhat amused and with good cause, I'd imagine. Anyway, yeah. Tommy yeah. adds that manners cost nothing. And even if you don't agree with somebody's argument, you should at least have the manners to let them make it uninterrupted. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, he did. He got plenty of time. I think. <laughs> Sean uh, does anyone says, does anyone wonder about the change in the weather here in Ireland? We've had all the hurricanes and snowfalls mm. and um, real weather extremes that we wouldn't have been used yep. to and says that we need to think about what is going on in the world, what is causing this and how it's affecting well, us. Well, we've 12 years, uh, according to that report a few weeks ago, 12 years uh, before we see real changes uh, that uh, will make it a, a world that we can't identify with now. Debbie thinks that we need better transport systems in order to cut down on carbon emissions. There should be a rollout of cycle lanes across the country to make it safer instead of having to drive all the time. Because unfortunately, Mm. Mm. Debbie says, if you live outside the capital city, you really have to drive to get to most places because Mm. there's no alternative. And that is the problem. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people tell you they have to drive to get a a carton of milk. Yes. Uh, But how do you pay for cycle? Tax. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, how do we pay for anything? Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't build themselves. That's no, the point they don't build themselves. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's the point she mm. was making. Yep. Uh, moving on then to uh, the scouts. Declan phoned in regarding the alleged abuse in Scouting Ireland and says that we probably shouldn't be surprised over the historical abuse that went on, considering what went on at the same time in other organisations in Ireland, including Mm. the church. Unfortunately, he says, we lived at a time when there was so much hidden and thankfully things have changed since then. Well, let's hope that they have uh, because uh, I think we're only at the beginning of what... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. That is going to be a very long, grotesque story. Okay. Um, Joanne wants to know, is there going to be action brought against those who are supposed to have carried out this abuse in the Scouts? They cannot be allowed to get away with what they did. It doesn't matter how long ago it was. Well, unfortunately, many of them are dead, or at least that's what we've been told. Uh, The majority of them are deceased. Uh, They say that those who are alive aren't working in Scouting Ireland and many of them are in prison. But the audit has completed up to the end of the 1980s yes, yes. Uh, and there's a, another three decades almost uh, to look at. To uh, look that's at. three decades of files that Scouting Ireland recorded. Uh, it's nothing to do with the abuse that took place that wasn't recorded uh, or uh, reported to Scouting Ireland uh, and you'd have to assume that there's many cases if there are so many cases that were recorded. Another listener phoned in, didn't want name to be used, but just said that many parents sent their children to the Scouts because they felt it would mm. help to make them better men, yeah. if you like, to yeah. learn the basic skills mm. in, life, in life. And it's just horrific now to think that some of them could have been subjected to abuse and that it was covered up mm. so long for so yeah. long. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, I suppose hurt out there mm. over that Michael and as you say we're mm. going to hear more about oh, it Oh yeah well we're only I have to uh, conclude I mean I can only guess but I can only imagine that we're only uh, seeing uh, the tip of the iceberg here that this is going to be a very long and detailed story Michael from Kells phoned in yesterday uh, during your min- your interview with uh, Junior Minister Damien English and he says that he's just sick to the teeth listening to the Minister talking now and he says he's talking about the housing for old people but what concerns Michael and he genuinely was upset on the phone is that there are so many children he says without a roof over their heads that are living in hotels and hostels and it just makes me so upset when I hear of all of the homeless people that's what I want to hear the Minister address Okay well we asked the Minister to speak uh, about housing for older people going into the future so that's why he spoke about that Uh, and I suppose it would have been unfair to expect him to speak about another issue when you asked him to speak about that so if there is fault in any of that it lies with us Uh, but I thought it was interesting to hear about some of uh, the plans uh, for people retiring in comfort rather than going into nursing homes uh, and that uh, to do with the ageing population and so on. Theresa was also in touch in relation to that interview and the talk about older people right-sizing and she is not happy with the way she feels older people are being treated. She says, why should the elderly be expected to give up our homes that we bought with with our husbands and reared our families in? It's the government's fault what is going on at the moment in relation to the crisis. We weren't Mm. the cause of the crisis and I I just think it's really, really upsetting that people should expect us to give up our homes of mm-hmm. maybe 40 or 50 years. Well, it is uh, if that is happening. And I think there are some people who, uh, who are making suggestions uh, along those lines. Uh, but I don't think that was uh, what the minister was suggesting. Uh, and what he was talking about was making it possible for people to make choices and that if they decided to move into one of uh, these retirement villages, that that's what they decided. Not that they were forced to do it, but that they decided to do it rather than go into a nursing home, for example, because I think that would be an option a lot of people would prefer to have. Seamus phoned in in relation to 
this possible referendum on the protection, I suppose, of the water services oh, yeah. from mm, being mm. privatised and just was interested in the interview mm. yesterday and just said that, uh, do you not find it a bit amusing that the Taoiseach and Fine Gael have done a U-turn really in relation to this and it just shows you the power of the people because maybe after all they did listen to what people have been saying because last year uh, the Taoiseach was adamant that there wouldn't be a referendum. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. That's that's true. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it is. Mm. Uh, on, I'm not uh, sure it'll make any difference, but maybe uh, it is the power of the people, and maybe it's a case of careful what you wish for. I mean, that conversation that we had yesterday. I don't know if uh, people got the gist of what I was saying, but if you take away the argument that it's a step that charging for water is a step towards privatizing it, take away that argument because you mm. put it into the constitution that it can't be privatized. Well, then uh, there's fewer arguments against charging for it. Okay. So we could be careful. <laughs> so we could be. Yeah. Maybe, yes. may, maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, a considered. Regretting it. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll watch this space. Anything is possible, Michael. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think at the time we will be cha- charged for water. Uh, I think that's going to start uh, in 2020. It was to start next year, but in 2020 it will start. Uh, and maybe not in our lifetimes, but certainly uh, in, in uh, a number of years, people will be charged for water. On the relationship between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, we had a call from Jim who says that he's been listening to the programme over the past couple of weeks and it's very clear to him that Fianna Fáil seem to be at odds with Fine Gael and vice versa. Mm. And uh, you only had to listen to the Ardesh, uh, the Fine Gael Ardesh to, to, to realise that. But he says that they seem to be at odds over lots of different issues and just wonders why Fianna Fáil is still keeping Fine Gael in government. What is Fianna Fáil afraid of? Are they nervous about a general election? Is that the reason why they are still propping them up? Mm, okay. So that's what he wants to know. Yeah, you'd wonder if Fine Gael have similar feelings like, you know, why do they continue with disagreement with Fianna Fáil if they've so many problems with Fianna Fáil? Right, well, look, we'll finish on that one, Michael. All right, thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And Marie and Maggie are taking calls today. As usual, our telephone number is 1850 Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. To say the Brexit deal uh, was passed comfortably in the Dáil last night would be an understatement. Uh, There wasn't even a vote on it because it would have required at least 10 TDs to have wanted a vote, but uh, there was widespread support for the deal. Uh, The withdrawal deal or the draft deal will go to the Shannon today and no doubt uh, Shannon Darren will pass the motion meaning that the Irish government will have ratified it in advance of the EU Council summit on Sunday. Let's uh, hear a little bit more about what you can expect from the Shannon debate today with independent Senator Jared Crockwell, who's also a member of the Oireachtas Committee on European Affairs. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. I take it it's just a formality at this stage and that it will be passed comfortably. I, I think you're dead right, Michael. It's a formality in Ireland. And it will be passed unanimously, I would think, in the Senate today. I can't think of anybody that will be against uh, the deal. The, the, the problem is, I'm not sure we have a deal. <laughs> and um, uh, this thing uh, moves like the tide. That one day you're one place, the next, place, next day you're somewhere else entirely. I mean, we have Angela Merkel out this morning, mm. or uh, last night, saying 
she may not now sign off uh, if there is not an agreement by today. We have... Um, and that may not happen because of the Spanish and the uh, veto they're looking for on Gibraltar and the French are concerned about fishing. Exactly. And what's happening now is as you come to the final, um, <clears throat> the final stage, um, everybody's national interest kicked in. I'm delighted to say I'm just back from a European Affairs, Joint European Affairs Committee uh, of the 27 uh, in Vienna, and there was a motion passed there in support of the Irish situation, and in particular the underpinning of the Good Friday Agreement, and uh, that was unanimously passed without a vote, which is something quite unusual at a COSEC meeting. So um, there is tremendous support for the Irish position, but the problem we have is... um, Theresa May is unable to bring her uh, government along with her. Mm. Uh, Angela Merkel now getting a little windy, Mm. the French a little windy, the Spanish Mm. a little windy. Borders are a huge issue for the Hungarians, the Czechs, the Poles. Mm. So, uh, Michael, I wouldn't be heading down to the local betting shop on this. Okay, well, you bring with you a very good insight to all of this, obviously, as a a member of uh, the European Affairs Committee uh, and, indeed, as a a senator. But uh, I'm not sure if you'll agree, but there seems to be a consensus, at least, that Angela Merkel will get over her concerns because it'll blow over uh, for the Spanish and uh, the French getting windy will also blow by uh, as well. And some of these other obstacles will be passed and Theresa May will come uh, willing to sign. Uh, it's what happens after that that lies that that, that uh, starts the real problem because she won't get it through the House of, of Commons. Uh, but uh, as someone who, who lived in the UK and indeed was a, a member of the British Army, I'm sure you've been watching the debate there quite closely. What do you think uh, will uh, happen uh, if she doesn't manage to secure support in the House for the deal? Well, I think anybody that has watched Theresa May over the last couple of weeks, and in particular last uh, uh, in the last Commons debate, she has proved herself to be a tour de force. However, as um, Sir William Carsdale, I think is his name, uh, said to me in Vienna the other day, he said, there's no point in being a tour de force if you're trying to sell something that is unsellable. Uh, so I think it's not going to get through the British Cabinet. I, or sorry, the British Parliament. I think the DUP are not going to support it. Um, while at the same time, uh, Arlene Foster has held open the possibility of remaining loyal to the Conservative uh, government. So uh, I, I think we have one hell of a roller coaster coming up mm. in the House of Commons. I cannot see it getting through, being totally honest about it. And I think we're heading for a hard Brexit, which for people in your neck of the woods mm. uh, is a very serious issue. Because uh, and, 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 and that's your sense at the moment because uh, I suppose there's the real chance that the United Kingdom will crash out if there isn't uh, the support of the British Parliament. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, they could go back and renegotiate. They could hold a general election. They could have a, another referendum. There are other options on the table. Well, they have ruled out categorically, and I mean, all parties, we've met with the Labour Party, the the only people that have said they might consider another uh, referendum are the Liberals, but the Conservatives and the Labour will not. So the referendum is out of the question. I think you hit on something that is possible, though, and that is a general election, and that one or other party would have, as part of its manifesto, the support for remaining in Europe. You know, that would be an excellent scenario because I think that they would actually get the, uh, uh, 
the majority in mm. the next government. And the problem is, um, I, I, I just cannot see the methodology that's going to bring us to that. It's quite difficult to bring down a British government given their fixed term um, status. So we're in it. We're in a sort of a no man's land at the moment. Mm. It is really, really worrying. And what is clear is the the agreement requires that there would be some customs checks between goods travelling from Northern Ireland to the UK mainland. And um, that is repugnant to the DUP. And it is rather sad that such a small party uh, grouping are managing to speak for such a large population in the north of Ireland. But are are you really suggesting that if politicians say they won't do something, that that means they won't do it? In this particular case... (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's really interesting. Michael. Yeah. Um, in this particular case, I think the DUP uh, will not sign off on this agreement. No, but what about a referendum? Uh, I mean, would you really discount <laughs> the idea of a referendum? Um, having listened to some of the peers mm. uh, over the last few days at COSAC, I'm convinced that a referendum, I mean, I, we listened to both sides. We listened to the Remainers and the Brexiteers, and both sides were adamant that there would not be another referendum. Um, you know, there's a touch of let's make Britain great again about all of this. Mm. Yeah, well, it's uh, worrying in the extreme. Uh, Mrs. May uh, has uh, surprised pe- people because she's uh, making her way home, but is to return to Brussels again on Saturday uh, to look at the future relationship agreement, which is the agreement which follows the withdrawal agreement without trying to confuse people too much. Uh, but is there any scope for optimism in, in, in uh, that unscheduled meeting that she's to have? I think what Theresa May is going to do uh, and I base this on some small bit of inside uh, information I've been given, uh, not 100% accurate, but I'm inclined to believe it, and that is that she will go, she will sign the deal, and she will come back to her parliament and say, right, I've signed the deal, now you guys ratify it. Mm. And that, that's then putting it up to them. And let's be honest about it, Michael, if, they, if the 48 had signed the 1922 uh, yep. uh, to the committee, she would now be facing a, a challenge of no confidence. I don't believe there's 48 there that'll support her, and I would love somebody to tell me who could take over the party were she to be deposed. Well, morning. there's plenty who could. Uh, I think the uh, more pertinent question is who would want to? Uh, give... <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Michael, you're spot on, so you are. Absolutely. Nobody there, wants us. Uh, and there are some who would believe uh, that there are 48 MPs who have sent in one of these letters to the 1922 committee, uh, but there is also uh, a clause with those letters uh, that uh, they decide the time that they detonated. And I think detonating the letter is uh, the expression that they use in terms of invoking it, if you like, uh, and they're waiting for the right time. So that might happen early next week. Yeah, my understanding is, again, from some of the people I spoke to in, in Vienna, my understanding is that a number of the letters that were submitted were subsequently withdrawn. Um, and they, w- they were withdrawn on the basis that we may again trigger uh, the letter. But as of right now, it's withdrawn and can't, can't be counted as one of the 48. Mm. So, I mean, look, at have you ever seen... Uh, Lord Boswell made the point in, in uh, uh, Vienna in his entire uh, political history, and he's been around a long, long time, he said he has never seen a British government so much in disarray, uh, so divided in itself, 
So I think that's the problem. I think the one thing that was really, really uh, obvious in, in uh, at our recent European meeting was the, uh, I suppose, the collegiality and the solidarity amongst all of the 27. I was quite taken aback. Uh, I have to compliment our public servants. To, uh, the, the, the politicians always take the bows. But I'll tell you, our foreign affairs people have done an enormous job in getting the Brexit issue for Ireland on every table in every country in the 27. It's all very well for Leo Varadkar, for myself, for any one of us to take the bows and say, oh, we, we did so much, or we did this, and we did that. Our ambassadors and their staff are to be congratulated. They did a tremendous job. But the British gamble, the gamble Theresa May is hoping will work indeed undoubtedly her officials and ambassadors will hope will work as well is that she'll go back to parliament with uh, this take it or leave it scenario take this terrible situation which we all agree is terrible and far from satisfactory and so on or face armageddon Uh, and you mentioned the dup Uh, there is the chances they're not that the DUP will U-turn on this or find a way of U-turning on it uh, because they don't seem to have uh, the support of their constituency with the farmers in Northern Ireland coming out in favour of uh, the deal, the business community across the board coming out in favour of uh, the deal and the argument being put up to them that you're rejecting uh, take your cake and eat it uh, proposition as well. Uh, you're, You're dead right. The, the, the big problem for the DUP is the constituencies that support Brexit are not the people who bring uh, income into Northern Ireland. Um, they're not the people who, if you want, drive their economy. Uh, it's a very, very small minority that are Brexiteers, if you want to call them that, in the north of Ireland. And I think, I think the gun is going to be put very much uh, metaphorically to Arlene Foster's head, and I think Arlene is going to find the formula of words and as you know, Michael, you know this as well as I do, a formula of words can sell mm. anything. And I think that it's the formula of words that they're looking for desperately right now. But even with that, the Labour Party have said they will vote down this. Half the Conservative Party say they will vote down the deal. Mm. And being honest about it, when you look at the deal, <coughs> there is no way that they can negotiate all that has to be negotiated in the two-year um, uh, period that has been set aside. The best legal brains in England and Ireland at a recent conference in Killarney pointed out that the minimum period, minimum transition period, would be five years. But more realistically, uh, they were saying a 10-year transition period. That means Britain adhering to all the EU rules, being subject to the European Court of Justice, uh, having all of the same, the four uh, pillars Uh, including the freedom of movement, would survive for another five to ten years. And the Brexiteers can't take that. Now, having said that, Boris Johnson, at a meeting we had with him, uh, where we asked him, what what do you think if things are going seriously wrong in your economy? Major industries leaving, stock Mm. markets sliding, etc. What do you do then, Mr. Johnson? Mm. And his answer was, if it goes like that, we can always change direction. Right, well, we've been hearing some terrible stories about how it might go. 
Uh, and in terms of how it might go in Northern Ireland, uh, apart from uh, the obstacles to trade and the cost of all of this, indeed the restriction on the movement of people that is a possibility as a result of all of this. Uh, We've been hearing things like problems for the electricity market and that they might have to bring in electricity generators from Great Britain so that there would be power available to people in Northern Ireland, that the army might have to uh, stop runs on petrol stations because of shortages in fuel supply, that there be customs checks and customs posts and that that might lead to a tax on those posts and then they would have to be policed and that might lead to a tax on those who are policing it and a return to the troubles and so on. And nobody on this island wants to see a situation like that or anything to do with any of those matters. Uh, And uh, in the worst case scenario that this is... uh, crash out of the European Union for Northern Ireland and a return to a hard border on this island. Uh, do you think that would make the argument for a border poll? No, the border poll, no, I don't. I don't I don't believe that Ireland is yet ready for a border poll. I fully understand I'm a member of the Good Friday Committee as well, and I mm. fully understand that the Good Friday Agreement uh, allows for a border poll where you have 50% plus one that is sufficient to, um, if you want to do away with the border, do away with the north of Ireland and its allegiance to the UK. But six months it, after the situation, let's say let next October, if uh, they crash out in April, next October, uh, if you can't get petrol or diesel in Uri uh, and uh, you have a, a generator in a canal to get power uh, in other parts of the six counties, do you think people then might turn to the idea uh, to, or, or look on the idea of a, a border poll more favourably? They may very well look on the idea, but the problem we have, Michael, is it's a tripartite um, issue. First and foremost, the people in the Republic would have to vote, the people in the North would have to vote, and we need the British government to trigger the the actual border poll. Um, whether the British government would trigger it, I'm not too sure. Um, and even if there were two, I'm not. Nobody has actually assessed the support for a border poll in the Republic. They have assessed it in the North of Ireland to a certain degree, and indeed, I have met uh, many many unionists up there who are. Put it this way: they see a certain inevitability mm. of um, a border poll. But I think we've a long way to go to understand one another and to respect each other's traditions before we poke the the, the bear with a stick. All right. Well, let's hope we never have to do that, literally. But uh, there'll be uh, undoubtedly a, a lot of uh, interesting discussion in the Shannon uh, when it looks at uh, the draft withdrawal deal today. And thank you indeed for speaking to us uh, in advance. Uh, that's Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, who's also a member of the Oireachtas Committee on European Affairs. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, a million people drink water from private supplies in this country uh, but how clean is the water and what risk are you at of drinking water that is being contaminated by E. coli for example well the EPA is concerned because they've found 51 supplies that have been contaminated and they are more concerned about uh, the number of schemes
items that are not being tested. Some 711 small water supplies do not be tested for E. coli. Let's talk about this with Seamus Sherlock, who's the Rural Development Chairman with the ICSA. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Are you concerned about this? Yes, I suppose everybody in the country is concerned about this. I think it's something that, you know, we have to look at. And I think it's time that maybe every water scheme is tested. As far as I know, even Michael, people themselves can buy kits now in the chemist. I could could be open to correction, but I'm led to believe that people can even buy a kit now to test for E. coli. And I think every family should do so, you know, especially where they have children, maybe, and vulnerable people in the home. And should they expect it to be... E. coli free, or would you expect that there be small amounts of E. coli in the world? Well, listen, I suppose that would be, you know, something for the professional people to say. Mm. You'd be hopeful, of course, that it would be E. coli free, but, you know, unfortunately, it looks like there's always going to be a very small percentage. How does it get into the water? Because uh, these schemes are supplied from springs or wells or that type of thing, aren't they? Well, I suppose, look, at it really depends. I believe certain parts of the country have more porous soils and rocks than others. And, you know, over the years, human nature, people, you know, there's more and more people living in rural Ireland, more and more septic tanks, things like that, maybe that were leaking. And I was glad to see in the last few years there was a big push there for people to improve their septic tanks Mm. because I believe human waste could have a big part to play in this. And, um, you know, if everybody works together, we probably will never, like most problems, we'll never wipe it out completely, but we'll bring it down as small as possible. Yeah, and... Septic tanks, you uh, would guess, is uh, the big contaminator of these supplies. Well, I mean, we're talking about private supplies. I think the EPA came out just and said a lot of these problems were found where there was a private water supply. And I mean, anyone that has a private water supply, nearly 99% of them would probably have a a private sewage system as well. And, you know, there was a big push in the last four or five years, Michael, for people's upgrade. You know, the the days of the old septic tanks, the, the block of concrete in the ground, the square, you know, mm. four-walled piece of concrete, the sewage going into it and so- see, soaking out the other end, that day is gone. And I think that could have probably have led to a lot of our problems. Uh, and what about farming, uh, uh, farmers and farming practices? Uh, could they be responsible? Well, I suppose, look, at there's always the chance there could be, but in fairness now to the farming community, as I think you well know, we are very heavily regulated now when it comes to the storage and spreading of slurry. There's extreme measures there put in place every year that nothing can be spread in wrong conditions, nothing can be spread near waterways. And, you know, farmers are regulated very highly on this, very stringently, and that has really cleaned up the water supplies in a lot of the country. Mm. Well, I, I suppose we don't know how great the problem is, but if there is a, a problem, it's probably uh, to some degree as a, a result of slurry spreading in breach of the guidelines. Well, look, to be honest with you, I think most of your listeners will agree now that, you know, most farmers are inspected every year and mm. inspected rigorously and they have capacity. Every farmer now has to be able to prove they have the capacity to carry the slurry the slurry from the amount of animals they have on the farm and they're only allowed to spread certain months of the year and as well as that they're not allowed to spread near waterways look at you can't guarantee that everybody is completely within the law at all times but i can assure you you see very very few farmers now being losing payments and that over that kind of thing it's very stringently checked farmers are under severe pressure to make sure everything is right and rightly so 
we, you know, we are the custodians of the land, we are the custodians of nature, and we don't want to be the ones to do it any harm. Right, uh, I'm sure you'd uh, appeal to anybody uh, who may be putting water supplies at risk uh, not to do so because the consequences can be terrible if not severe. I mean, it can lead to all sorts of intestinal problems. Uh, people can have diarrhea, uh, pains in the well, abdomen, can be vomiting, uh, can lead to fever, uh, can lead to diarrhea, dehydration and even kidney failure. Well, Michael, I would probably widen that appeal. I would appeal to not just farmers, but maybe to local authorities and that we've all heard and seen reports over the years where local authorities maybe didn't have the capacity to handle the amount of storage they were trying to process. And we'd have to ask the question, where did that extra storage go? Unfortunately, people would tell you it probably went down a river. So, you know, it's not just the farmer community that has to tighten their belt up here. I think local authorities all those kind of things. Everybody has to work together in this. I don't believe there's any blame game here for anybody. Mm. Everybody's doing their best they can. Okay, there does be mistakes made. But I can assure you, farmers are very, very stringently regulated at the moment. So is the EPA mistaken in asking local authorities uh, to police water supplies properly uh, if you believe uh, they're part of the problem? Well, listen, at the end of the day, it's the right task them. There's no real, as I said to you already there, Michael, I don't believe in the blame game. It's, it's probably not the local authorities' fault that they haven't got the funding to put the proper treatment storage plants in place. I know they are now. But towns grew up, as you know well, very quickly in, in counties like Mead and Loud. Cavan. Towns grew up overnight like mushrooms. Mm. And it's nearly impossible to expect the local authorities to be able to handle all that extra storage. But they are getting there. It's like the farming. It took time to get the splatter sheds up. It took time to get the extra storage up, but we're getting there. And now is the time that we must work together. No blame game. It's up to every authority to make sure that they're handling what storage is coming, you know, through their treatment plant and and handling it correctly. And it's up to the farmers to look after their end of the bargain as well. And I think, to be honest with you, I think most family farms that have a private water supply and hotels and that should get it tested maybe once or twice a year for their own sake to make sure that god forbid something isn't leaking in because i was listening to a professional on one of the mainstream media yesterday and he says you know sewerage or anything like that could go down into the ground here and it could get into a water supply it could come up 20 miles away yeah you know it could end up in a well 20 miles away so it doesn't necessarily have to be a local person that's polluting it it could be coming in streams underground. Seemingly, Ireland is absolutely covered in streams underground. And, you know, this thing could be coming, going down here and coming up 30, 40 miles away. OK, well, listen uh, to something completely different. Uh, the ICSA is uh, to stage a protest on Monday outside an auctioneer's, I understand. Yes, um, and unfortunately, it's a way of life now for many, many people. It's a crisis, actually, in rural Ireland at the moment, and including counties like Mead and Loud. I think there has been high-profile cases there in the last few weeks. Uh, vulture funds are uh, something that's been spoken about regularly now. Unfortunately, our financial institutions have sold a lot of loans to vulture funds. And in turn, these vulture funds are putting these properties, family farms, homes, businesses, up on a website called BidX1. They're an, auction, an online auctioneering firm. And unfortunately, Michael, they seem to be trying to sell a lot of distressed property on these websites without even the owners of the property knowing it's up there. So well, I've decided, ICSA, we're, we're going to do a protest outside the BidX1 
offices in Waterloo Road, Dublin 4, on Monday from 12 to 1, just to highlight mm. the hurt and pain that this is causing rural Ireland. And we have a motto on the day. Our stand is very simple. Mediation, not confrontation. We want the banks and the okay. banks to sit down with farmers, discuss their problems and restructure it and not have it that there's going to be a standoff at people's gate. And BIDX1 will hold their next auction on the 12th of December and another auction then on the 13th of December. And unfortunately, as you well know from people even in in your own listenership, People, farmers haven't even realised that their farms were up in it until someone rang and told them. Okay, there's there's a lot of properties uh, that will be sold, it would seem, through these auctions, and a lot of them are are not farming properties. Uh, I'm not sure how many of them were distressed properties or what the circumstances of them were. Uh, This happens to be an online site that you say uh, the Fulcher Funds deal with quite regularly, but they deal with all estate agents and auctioneers quite regularly. Are you putting a a marker down to all estate agents and auctioneers in this country not to accept uh, properties that have been given to them by vulture funds. Yes, Michael, we are putting down a marker here that no auctioneer or solicitor should deal with vulture funds that are trying to sell a distressed property unless every other avenue has been looked into. What we are looking for is mediation. Most of these families... Is that fair? Sorry? Is that fair? Yes, it is fair because at the end of the day, businesses. These are these are auctioneers. Uh, they 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 take business or they take property well, from so, from, from somebody who's selling it Michael, and and, and try to sell it on their behalf. It's no, not Michael. up to them to make a, a a moral judgment on it. Well, I think it should be up to them because at the end of the day, those family auctioneer run business around Ireland and have been used by farmers and businesses for years to sell property legitimately good in, under goodwill. They have made a lot of money out of the farm. Sector by sending but these are perfectly legal transactions. Oh yes, but that doesn't mean they're morally proper. And you, as far as you, I'm concerned, you're asking auctioneers to make a, a moral judgment on property that is being offered to them. Yes, we are because at the end of the day, those well, well, you may place a picket outside every estate agents in the country. Well, at the end of the day, we're hoping we won't have to do that. But, we're but do you accept that that that's a fact of life? Yes. That every estate agent in the country is dealing with distressed properties. Yes, but at the end of the day, if estate agents would only handle property that was bona fide for sale, we have no problem with distressed property being sold if every other... But none of them are. That's what I'm saying to you. They all deal with distressed properties. Yes. But the thing about it is, whatever about an estate agent where you can go in and discuss with them, an online auction is very difficult because nobody, there's no face there, there's nobody there. You just log in, you, you pay your money, you okay. log in and you bid. You can actually buy a property from your own couch, sitting at home in front of the fire. And we believe this is wrong. It's putting huge mental and financial pressure on a lot of farmers. The amount of farmers, Michael, that's ringing me at the moment, stressed out, okay. they cannot sleep at night, they're petrified. They want to deal it. They want to sit down and restructure their loans. Okay. They feel they're not getting the chance. And we're asking the auctioneers to give them that chance. You're protesting outside BIDX1 on yes. Monday evening. That's yes. the Waterloo Monday Road. Monday at 12 o'clock. All right. Thank you indeed thank uh, for you. joining thank us uh, this morning. Seamus Sherlock is uh, the ICSA Rural Development Chairman. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Fianna Fáil used its private members' time in the Dáil last night to table a motion calling for 24-7 home care packages. That's home care packages that would be available to people seven days a week around the clock. It has the support of Third Age and indeed 24 other members of the Home Care Coalition group, which has been speaking about the issue and the concerns they have for older people going into the winter. And Dempsey is the communications manager and training facilitator with Third Age and joins us now. And I take it, Anne, there's an economic argument for this apart from anything else. Very much so. I mean, it's kind of no-brainer really, isn't it, Michael, that if we contrast the cost of keeping somebody in hospital, uh, people, you know, being admitted when they don't need to, people being kept in because there's nowhere to go home but then to go to or proper care with the kind of um, add-on or supplementary or menu of choices that could mm. help to keep somebody at home. Uh, there's much more flexibility around that, particularly as there's a family around to build in help with the shorter period. So mm. it's it's it just makes such sense, as well as being better for the person's well-being, better for family, better for everybody. Yeah, well, it might be a, a no-brainer, but it gets confusing uh, when uh, it's not not looked on as simply as that. Uh, Is that because the budgets are separate, that the hospital budgets are separate than to the budgets uh, that are allocated to home care? I think think it's sometimes short-termism. As we know from the figures that the HSE is promising an additional 550 home care packages. So the HSE is very, very aware of the current need. But um, another assessment showed that, in fact, we need 6,200. There are 6,200 waiting for home care packages at the minute, and some of them are waiting years. And think of the cost of those people this winter. I mean, on senior line, we have people phoning us, particularly as autumn goes into winter, Michael, mm. clock goes back, saying, you know, don't know how I'm going to manage this year. I'm only heating one room. I'm going to bed very early in the afternoon. All leading to poor eating, anxiety, depression. It, it just, it, 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 you know, in the long term, the bigger scheme of things, if we really thought, took the bigger picture in a wider way, we would, make, we, we, we would be making different decisions, I think. Uh, and how do you make these packages uh, available through the night? Well, I think when Mary was talking about round the clock, it is an ideal, it is a concept for perfection. It is an ideal situation. I think the the Home Care Coalition, what we've talked about is a more modest 10 million, and 10 million isn't a lot in the great scheme of things, to try and uh, help more a weekend kind of situation. I mean, uh, the, the phrase that Mary Butler used, which is very emotive but very, very true, because we know from the senior line also that people do go to bed on Friday evening and really try to manage to stay around bed and do very, very little until Monday morning because there's nobody coming in to help them. Because quite often somebody will come in to help them get out of bed. So is it that they can't get out of bed on a Saturday? It's the whole thing. I mean, I'm just thinking of a situation mm. for anecdotally where, no, sorry, not anecdotally, where I know factually where somebody's currently looking for somebody to come in in the morning to help get him up, yeah. washed, showered, and then he'll be all right in the day. Mm. He gets meals on wheels and then the, the opposite at night. So 
you know, people can manage in the day. And this is where, as you know, when we were talking about the senior line service and our age well service, that there's so many community services that are ready to kind of take up the slack to to work with the community and social care services on a voluntary basis. For example, AgeWell, our service, as you probably know, Mike, that's mm. a new service that is making a big difference, where we have trained volunteers coming in every week to visit older people face-to-face, doing a health check on them by the use of a dedicated app, and then calling them every week as well. Now, that is making a huge difference. It might seem very little. It's making a huge difference to the quality of life of these older people in terms of helping them feel better, re- reducing their feelings of loneliness, helping them to get out and about. We've, we've got our midline survey on this, our study, so we have definitive figures about it. And, you know, again, that's making, as I, it seems so little, and it can, can have a huge effect and a huge difference. Okay, well, it's a, an important issue. It'll be voted on, I think, uh, tomorrow, uh, or today, actually. Uh, but uh, yeah. we leave it there for the moment, Anne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Third Age, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Uh, God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie